Crime shows seem to be, always have been a staple of television. I grew up in the UK with British shows like Z Cars and Softly Softly, as well as US ones like Columbo and The Rockford Files. More recently, there's been shows like Broadchurch, Line of Duty, Collateral, of course Sherlock. And then there's all the courtroom dramas like Law and Order. Judging by what we watch on television, um, we seem to be fascinated with the mechanics of justice. And that isn't anything new. People have always been interested in justice. What it is, how it works. The passages that were just read are thousands of years old and they talk about justice, especially about God's concern for justice. I'll come back to some of those passages in a few minutes. But first, I'd like us to look at a courtroom scene that's a little different from Law and Order or any of those other TV shows. And it's found in Micah 6, 1 to 8. And in this passage, God is going to court against his own people. It says, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. In Old Testament times, if you wanted to lodge a court case, you didn't go to the courthouse, there wasn't a courthouse, you went to the city gates. And there you could always find some of the elders of the city, men who were considered to be wise. And you would call together a group of elders and they would hear your case and bring their wisdom to bear on the situation. So God calls together the mountains and the hills, the oldest things around, if you like, the elders of creation, to hear his case against the people of Israel. In verse 3, it goes on. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So in verses 3 to 5, God is saying to his people, why have you rejected me? I haven't done anything to burden you. In fact, I'm the one who bent over backwards to rescue you from slavery out of Egypt. And then he points out a couple of events in their history, the history of the Exodus, to, to show how much he cares for his people. Micah's response suggests that the people thought that what God wanted from them was to be more religious. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And the religiosity just gets totally out of hand. Burnt offerings, thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil, and even to the point of offering up their own children in sacrifice. So all of this sets up what I think is one of the most wonderful verses in Scripture. Verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is one of the clearest statements in Scripture of just what it is that God requires of us. We often seem seem to think that following God is complicated, or we try to make it complicated, but it's not rocket science. He asks us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Michael was a country boy. Although he lived and worked in the big city of Jerusalem, he was originally from the small town of Morasheth. So, as a country boy in the big city, he's an outsider, and he looks on the city with different eyes from those who are from there. And as a result, he sees different things. And one of the things that he saw was the wealth and prosperity of the city. Jerusalem was doing very well indeed. And the people of Jerusalem were proud of what their city stood for. In the upmarket neighbors, people were building big houses for themselves. Economically, things couldn't be better. And one of the big reasons for that was that the economy was changing. For generations, it had been a barter economy. That meant if you need a new shovel for your farm, you go down to the local metal worker and say something like, how about I give you two chickens for a shovel? But things were changing. Someone had introduced the idea of money, a cash economy. So now instead of the farmer going down to the metal worker and offering two chickens for a shovel, shovels now cost 20 lira. So if you wanted a shovel, you had to go and sell your chickens for cash and then use the cash to buy the shovel. Now that may seem normal to us, but it was really strange for many people in Micah's day. Now of course Micah's from the countryside, which is always a little bit you know, behind the city in terms of these kinds of changes. Maryland's hometown in Canada, Hamilton, I talked about last week, used to be known as Steeltown. Um, and for many people in my father-in-law's generation, All you really needed was a strong back and a good work ethic and a job in the steel mills could support a family, buy a house, even buy a cottage on a lake up north. But the economy has changed. Steel is no longer the biggest employer, not by a long shot. And a strong back isn't enough anymore. And it's taking young adults on average five years longer to leave home than it did in the 70s simply because it just costs so much to get started. In Micah's opinion, the switch to a cash economy has also made it easier for some people to get rich at others' expense. Because along with wealth came power, and along with power comes the ability to get more wealth, often in underhanded ways. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Micah cries out, 
Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do so. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. And then towards the end of the book, he's actually more explicit about who's doing this. In Micah 7, verse 3, The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The the powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. And moving from barter to cash has also made it easier for people to be cheated. There's a story told of a woman who went to a butcher shop. And she went to the man behind the refrigerated meat case and she said, I'd like a three and a half pound frying chicken. It was near the end of the day and as the butcher reached down behind the counter into the chest full of ice that contained the poultry, he found there was only one left. So he plopped the chicken on the scale and it weighed a little less than three and a half pounds. The customer says, well, I'd like one that's a little little bit larger. With that, the butcher put the chicken back in the ice chest, swished it around a bit so the body cavity filled with ice, then plopped the bird back on the scale again. It now weighed four pounds. Oh, good, the woman explained. I'll take both of them. That's the kind of thing that Micah is talking about in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 6. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? An ephah is about 40 litres. It's how you measure grain. A short ephah is just what it sounds like. A measure that claims to be an ephah, but, you know, it claims to be about 40 litres, but it's actually more like 38 or 39. In the same way, dishonest scales and false weights skew every transaction in favour of the seller. And then, when your wealth is expressed in silver and gold, it's a lot easier to build up a lot of it. 20 lira take up a lot less space than two chickens, and you don't have to feed them. So the gap between the rich and poor was getting wider. When economic systems change, people get hurt, especially the weak and the vulnerable. It happened in Micah's day when Israel went from a barter economy to a cash economy. It happened in the 19th century when the Industrial Revolution led to people moving into the cities to work in huge factories under horrible conditions. And it's happening again today. The Economist magazine has been writing about what it calls the 90% economy that it expects will follow the coronavirus pandemic. There are three distinguishing features to the 90% economy. One, it's fragile. The threat of the coronavirus returning and leading to more lockdowns will make it nearly impossible for businesses to plan months ahead. Without long-term planning, it's difficult to to envisage businesses sinking money into investment projects. Two, it's less innovative. Less face-to-face socialising means fewer opportunities for the sorts of spontaneous brainstorming sessions that lead to world-changing ideas. And three, and this is my point, it's more unfair. 
as the chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank, said recently, this economic crisis has disproportionately hurt lower-income workers. Researchers at Oxford University found that Americans who make less than $20,000 a year were twice as likely to lose their job during the pandemic than those making more than $80,000 a year. I don't know if there's been any studies done on Turkey, but I think it would be unusual if Turkey were any different from the places where the studies have been done. And they all point to two things. One, the people most likely to get sick with COVID are those who work in low-paid but essential positions. Bus drivers, cleaners, meat packagers, nurses, medical staff. Two, to add insult to injury, many of these people are also those who are most likely to lose their jobs because of COVID. So what does God ask of us when everything is changing around us, when the poor are getting poorer, and when vulnerable people are being trodden underfoot? He calls us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Micah says that God has told us to act justly. Perhaps a better translation would be to do justice. What does that mean for us today? We often talk about getting justice. The Bible talks about doing justice. And those are two very different things. Not least because our idea of justice is actually quite different from what the Bible thinks means by justice. Now, in many places around the world you'll see this lady somewhere around a courthouse. This is Lady Justice, based on the Roman goddess Justitia. She symbolizes the Western model of justice. She's impartial. That's why she's sometimes shown blindfolded, so she's not swayed by the status of those around her. She's scientific. That's why she has the scales to weigh the arguments of a case. And she's retributive. That's why she has a sword to make the punishment fit the crime. And all of this is rooted in Roman law and its principle of to each man his due. To those who do right, reward. To those who do wrong, punishment. This is not what the Bible means by justice. Justice in the Bible is not first and foremost about weighing evidence and finding somebody guilty or innocent. It's much broader than that. It's about the creation of a community where people can live in peace and harmony. It's about striving towards the kind of society that Micah himself describes in chapter 4, verse 4, as a society where everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. People will have what they need, they will be able to live in peace and not be afraid of their neighbor or their, or their boss or whatever. That's what justice is in the, in the Old Testament. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid. But God's a realist. He realizes that this kind of, for this kind of society to exist, then someone has to look out for the little guy. Rich guys, the Bible basically assumes that rich people, powerful people, can look out for themselves. All through the Bible, God looks out for the little guy. 
Listen to this again from some of the words we heard read earlier. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love these who are aliens, for you yourself were aliens in Egypt. That's Deuteronomy ten seventeen to 19. Then Psalm 9, 7 to 10. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the world, the peoples with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And then Isaiah 59, 15 and 16. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Again and again, when the Bible talks about justice, and in the very next breath, it talks about the vulnerable, the poor, widows, orphans, immigrants, those who have no voice in society. These are the people who need a just society. These are the people who need someone to intervene. Some of you might have heard of Shane Claiborne. He founded a new monastic community in a poor neighborhood of Philadelphia. Now, the city had just passed an anti-homeless legislation, making it illegal for homeless people to sleep or ask for money in the parks. And in an, event, in an effort to uh, stop those who were seeking to help the homeless, city officials actually went further and they made it illegal to have food in the park. They banned all food from the park. So Claiborne writes, "'About a hundred of us gathered in Love Park "'with homeless friends.' We worshipped, sang, and prayed. Then we served communion, which was illegal. But with clergy and city officials there supporting us, and with the police and media surrounding us, we celebrated communion. Most of the police sat back and watched, not daring to arrest anyone, especially during communion. Then we continued the breaking of the bread by bringing in pizzas. It was a love feast. And then we slept overnight in the park with our homeless friends. We did that week after week, with the police watching over us and the media standing by. And then one night after worship, as we slept under the sign, the name of the park is Love Park, and so they had had a sign that had the Love Park, and they put a big question mark over the the sign, uh, the name of the, the park. The police circled the park and arrested all of us. Later, Claiborne stood before a judge wearing a shirt that read, Jesus was homeless. The judge was intrigued, um, admitting that he didn't know that Jesus had been homeless. The judge said that the real issue at stake was the constitutionality of the law, and he declared, let me remind the court that if it weren't for people who broke unjust laws, we wouldn't have the freedom that we have. We'd still have slavery. That's the story of this country. From the Boston Tea Party to the Civil Rights Movement, These people are not criminals, they are freedom fighters. I find them all not guilty on every charge. The newspapers announced it as a revolutionary court decision. And Claiborne writes that the judge asked him for a Jesus was homeless t-shirt. Micah says that we are to do justice and to love mercy. If you think of justice in the modern Western way, you almost always end up talking about justice and mercy as if they're opposed to each other. 
that you can do one or the other, but you can't do both. But it's clear in Scripture that mercy and justice are closely linked. Zechariah 7, verse 8 to 10. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Showing mercy and compassion to one another is a, is a part of administering true justice. And historically, the church has been good at mercy and compassion, helping those in need, but not as good at doing justice, dealing with the reasons why those people are in need. Oscar Romero, who was a Catholic archbishop in El Salvador, once said, If I feed the poor, they call me a saint. If I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. In the end, he asked why so often that he was shot dead in the middle of a Sunday service by a government death squad. Doing justice is often more costly than being merciful. It can cost your time, your money, your safety, your comfort. It, can, it cost Oscar Romero his life. And it cost my friend John Tarswell his life too. John was a Canadian member of a sending agency that worked in, with Afghan refugees. I first met him at their Canadian office in 1987. Then I met him again in September 1989 when we moved to Peshawar, Pakistan. He was the office manager for the NGO we worked with. And he and his wife helped us settle in and make friends. The details are a bit hazy but he was helping an Afghan family who were under threat from a Hezbi, from Hezbi Islami, a fundamentalist um, uh, um, party, Islamic party. And there was, a, there was a death sentence out on them. So he helped them to escape. And he succeeded. They, they escaped. But we think that the hit squad came for him instead. He disappeared on November 1st, 1989, and he's presumed dead. His body was never found. Doing justice can be very costly. The last part of Micah's definition of what God has called us to do is walk humbly with your God. I'm not going to talk about that today, not because it's not important, but because we've already talked about that in the first two messages of this series on holiness and humility. And you can check those out on the website at www.stpaulunionchurch.com. Before we end, I just want to mention that this Wednesday evening, um, we'll be revisiting this topic as we gather together to talk in more depth about what it means to do justice and love mercy. So, uh, here are some takeaways from this morning. Doing justice is part of our calling as people of God. Doing justice is often costly. Doing just, justice will usually put you on the same side as the vulnerable and marginalized in society. And that's not a bad place to be. I'm going to close with a quote from Bono, 
the lead singer of the rock band U2. And at one point, at least a few years ago, he was arguably the most famous Christian in the world. He was speaking at a national prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. in 2006, and he said this, Look, whatever thoughts you have about God, who he is or if he exists, most will agree that if there is a God, he has a special place for the poor. In fact, the poor are where God lives. I mean, God may well be with us in our mansions on the hill. I hope so. He may well be with us in all kinds, in all manner of controversial stuff. Maybe, maybe not. But the one thing we can all agree, all faiths and ideologies, is that God is with the vulnerable and the poor. God is in the slums, in the cardboard boxes with a poor playhouse. God is in the silence of a mother who has infected her child with a virus that will end both their lives. God is in the cries heard under the rubble of war. God is in the red debris of wasted opportunity and lives. And God is with us if we are with them. Then he quoted Isaiah 58. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you walked with the poor. You hung out with those on the margins. And you were vilified by the religious establishment for doing so. Lord, we often, we confess that we like being around people who are smart and healthy and wealthy and wise. And yet you call us, Lord, to work, walk alongside those who are poor, disadvantaged, the ones that the, our societies look down upon. Help us, Lord, to be people of justice. Help us, Lord, to be people who show your grace and kindness and mercy and, yes, justice in the world. Show us ways, Lord, this week, this month, that we can choose the harder path of walking alongside those in need. In your name we pray. Amen.